So the larger theme of the Tanya is to be a man of action. Dennis was saying, action. Ju- Judaism is hyper-focused on the ritual. As long as you're doing the mitzvahs and you're in control of your thought, speech, and action, you are the Tanya's hero. You are the possible man. The man who is always in charge of the one thing that's so elusive to so many, ourselves. But to do that, we require motivation, energy. See, you can't, there's no such thing as robotic Judaism. It's not sustainable. To just do the deed, do the deed. There needs to be an energy, there needs to be an inspiration. And so to that end, over the last couple of weeks, we started talking about how to bring emotion into Judaism. How to bring a passion into that which I do so that it becomes alive and it becomes meaningful and it becomes something you want to go back to. Because, as the Alter Rebbe said, when the heart is stimulated successfully, your behavior will follow and not just follow, but you'll be excited about it. And in Talmud, and especially in Kabbalah, we have a code word for passion. Ahava v'yira, love and fear. Love and fear are two very specific emotions, but uh, when you see those words in Zohar and in Kabbalistic literature, it's a reference to any emotionally charged Judaism. The reason we choose love and fear specifically is because fundamentally, the relationship with God consists of a love, a desire to connect to Him, and a fear or a respect for the relationship that you don't want to violate it. But we're going to be uncovering from now till the end of the Tanya, um, many different types. There's a whole gamut. There's a whole spectrum of, of emotions that can be infused into your Judaism. But typically it's love and it's fear. And elsewhere in the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe says, love is the vehicle for positive commandments and awe and respect is the vehicle for staying away from negative commandments. So we start with the action. And we say the way to get to the action is the emotion. The question then is, how do we get the heart excited? What's the backbone of the emotion? See, typically as human beings, we generate feelings based on experience. We're constantly experiencing things, and those are the things that are bringing out feelings in us. The problem is, when it comes to feelings about God, is that God has done this amazing thing called concealment. He's completely camouflaged himself in creation. And not only that, much of creation actually denies his existence. So there's like no evidence and trace of him by default that you can tangibly experience. So when you talk about generating feelings for God, it has to be addressed. How do you create those feelings? Because there's nothing in the world that's going to get you to feel them unless you're a tzaddik, unless you're somebody that's in tune with divinity. By default, you're not going to be experiencing those feelings. So the key word for this, and it's used many times in the Tanya, and it was used at the end of the last chapter as the cliffhanger going in to what's coming, is hitbonanut. Hitbonanut, many people like to associate with meditation. And I have used that translation in the past, but it's, it's not really accurate because meditation is uh, a spiritual exercise where we talk about clearing out your conscious mind of all distractions so that your subconscious can emerge and you can get in tune with the sublime and the transcendent. A more accurate translation of Hidbonanut is contemplation. 
Because in Hasidus' eyes, it's an intellectual exercise that will be the key to your soul. It's the mind that's going to bring you to God. Hasidus, Hasidus believes, Kabbalah believes, that that's part of the, the human advantage. The fact that we have intellect is to be used in the service of God, in the fact that when we process things academically, we can then produce and generate emotions, which brings us to action. So, if you think about it this way, we basically have now uh, a trifecta, and in a specific order. Intellectual exercise will bring to emotional stimulation, which will then bring to a sustainable Benoni life, a life that's centered around proper observance of Torah and mitzvahs the way God intended it. That's the, the, I guess, the larger theme that we have to look at when we're delving into tonight's chapter. And really from now till the next 10 weeks, we're gonna be uncovering a series of meditations, I'm using the word again loosely, a series of intellectual uh, contemplations to to delve into so that different emotions can be produced. Tonight and next week, we'll talk about specifically producing awe and fear of God. Mm. Then it's love of God. Then there's compassion. Then there's joy. There's all kinds of different emotions. And each one, because in the Tanya, we talk about the mind being the key to the heart, each one is going to be accompanied by something to think about. And verses where earlier in the Tanya, in chapter 33 and chapter 16, we talked about this in general terms, in these chapters, we're going to be getting specifics. The author is going to walk us through different things that you should think about that will get you to, uh, to have the heart kindled. But before I go there, there's another part of the puzzle that the author Rebbe addresses in this chapter. And that is, we need to talk about for a moment this, this art of hitbonenu, this art of contemplation. It, it may not be as simple as it sounds. You know, first... When you say, think about something, the assumption is you have something to think about. So for any hitbonnut to be effective, you need to first study and study a lot because you're going to be thinking about God and God's a study. There's a whole thing to it. So the first thing that has to happen is intense study. And we do that here, Baruch Hashem, week after week, we're coming and we learn about, about Hashem, we learn about our relationship with Him. And these are great starting points. And each of us on their own has a time that we study Torah, any part of the Torah. Because it's that study that's the first step to a successful contemplation experience. Secondly, to think, you have to focus. I know that sounds easy, but just try to focus and you'll discover how fast your mind wanders. It's, it's unbelievable. Five seconds, 10 seconds, you're already on to the next thing. The Rebbe would always say that the beginning, because he would talk to mentors for young yeshiva students who want a direction on how to engage in, in, in thinking about God before davening, he would always tell the teachers, first tell them to simply review a text in their heads. Don't think about any ideas. Learn something and then review the words in your head. Because a text holds you down. That's why it's actually easier to learn when you verbalize it. And that's why in yeshiva they always paired us up with partners. I remember in the beginning asking my teacher, ah, I want to learn myself, he holds me back. 
And he said, we'll see, we'll see who prevails. And I, in two, three weeks, I found that I wasn't doing the same amount that I could have done with a partner. Because when you're with a partner, you have to verbalize it, you gotta talk it through, you get to new depth and it, 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 it holds you to it. Versus having to think on your own, you start, you start getting distracted. So, it's an art. Study and then focus. And then, in the belief that proper thought will produce those feelings and ignite the heart, that'll happen. So, let me now, let, let me, having said that, let me now use the Tanya's imagery of this. The Alter Rebbe says, to have a successful contemplation requires toil of the flesh and toil of the soul. These are his words. Yigiat basar, yigiat nefesh. You have to work with your body, and then you have to work with your psyche. What does that mean? He says the, the, the flesh work, the body work, is removing whatever you're bringing to the table before you begin your exercise. And I'll just, to paraphrase, I'm not gonna use his exact words. We know today, and many people that think about the human condition talk about this, at any given moment, we are the sum total of our past experiences, right? Me, right now, talking, and you right now listening are not just an isolated person, isolated in a moment in time. You are everything you've experienced until now, and you carry all of that with you to any place or any experience that you go into. So, if we're talking about a person who wants to engage in a hitbonanut, he needs to acknowledge first that he's bringing with him whatever baggage his life had to offer until this point. And a lot of that can be incredibly distracting. The Alter Rebbe employs a language of sin because that's, that's the idea that he wants to bring out, but we'll call it desensitization. When you, when you want to engage in a spiritual, transcendent, and I keep going back to the word, but contemplation, you have to separate yourself from all the physical stuff that's dragging you down and all the stuff that's kind of stained your identity that makes it difficult to be fully involved and fully present. I mean, I know, forget spiritual and psychological things. Just, you know, after eating a big meal, there's, there's something difficult about focusing on something deep after that. That's, and, and that's a very, very uh, mundane example. Then we factor in traumas. Then we factor in previous antithetical to God experiences. Then we factor in so many other things. And there's a lot of weight. There's a lot of stuff that's accompanying you to your experience. So that's what the Alter Rebbe calls the toil of the flesh. He says you have to work very hard to remove that distraction, to clear it out so that it can be successful. By the way, he doesn't say it here. But remember we talked about Iskafia months ago, chapter 27, the idea of saying no to yourself instead of now say no. This is another reason why it's so important to live that way. Because when you're more refined, you have an easier time getting in touch with the divine. The more times you've given into yourself, compromised your own strength as a human being, the harder you'll find it to backtrack and reset. So that's another benefit of keeping in control in that way. And then you have what the author Rebbe calls the giat nefesh, the toil of the soul, which is to actually lock yourself into what you're thinking about. You've removed the distractions. It's still, it's still an art and it's still a challenge 
to invest yourself in the thought process, to be fully there in whatever it is you're trying to think about. Because remember, you're not just thinking about something now for the academic purposes of it, you're thinking about it so that you can generate feelings of the heart. And to do that, there's another step you have to climb. You have to be fully zoomed in. And the problem is that as human beings, we just don't have the time for that. We, unless you're somehow able to do it all day, we, we can't afford to spend all day thinking about Hashem and the things that we need to be thinking about to get these feelings going. So it, it almost seems like, what's the saying for that? Like, you know, we're dead on arrival. It seems like we're, we're missing even the baseline to get to the goal. Remember, the goal is to be a Jew who practices an action. To do that, we have to have passion. And the way to get there, the key to that is the mind. But if I can't even start that process, how will I get there? So the Altar Rebbe says two things. First of all, if you can't do it all day, or you can't do it every day, Set aside time that you can do that, that you could do it. Typically, the Alter Rebbe elsewhere in Hasidus talks about Shabbos being that time when we're removed from business, we're removed from the world, so we're able to uh, spend more time on the spiritual side of ourselves. How much time? How much time? The Alter Rebbe says it depends on the soul. You have to be generous, firstly. You can't, uh, you know, five minutes is not going to cut it. You have to be generous with it. Put aside a block of time where you say, I'm not going to be looking at the clock. I'm just going to be engaged. And the Alter Rebbe says, when you're in between those times, you'll be able to remember those experiences and draw power from there. So let's say it's from Shabbos to Shabbos, right? You go, Shabbos is my time. I come to shul half an hour before the davening starts, put on my talis, put it over my head, and now I'm thinking. I'm just dedicating time to think about Hashem. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, it doesn't happen. But I remember what happened on Shabbos. And I know that it's coming back next Shabbos for me. That can keep you alive in the interim. But there is no way around it. I mean, look, the, the Tanya is not, that, it's not the book to mince words. There, it, he gets right to it. There is no way around it. A proper hisbonanus, a successful engagement in, of, of the intellect is only going to happen when you generously put aside time for it. Kind of like we talked about many months ago in chapter 12, the Benoni who lights the fire in the morning, puts in all the fuel so that it can kind of keep him going throughout the day. Same idea. Maybe for us, not every day, maybe it's once a week. Obviously, once you go less often than that, it's not going to be as effective because you can't live from month to month. I mean, it doesn't... And certainly not from Yom Kippur to Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur can't be the only day we think about Hashem. It has to be a little more often. But there's another point that the Alter Rebbe raises uh, that's kind of, I guess, a comfort or a consolation for those of us who think that it's too far from us. And he illustrates it with a very, very, you can call it, on the surface, strange piece of Talmud. There's a verse in the Torah where Moshe, one of his last days, tells the Jewish people, 
ve'ata. He says, and now, ma Hashem elokecha shoel meimach. What is it that God's asking from you? He's not asking much. Ki'im liyira. He's just asking you to fear Him and to follow all His instructions. So the Talmud says, really? Is it that easy? Uh, Moshe's making it like, yeah, what's God asking from you just to fear Him and do His mitzvahs? Is it, is it a small thing, the Talmud says? And the Talmud answers, yes. For Moshe, who was giving the sermon, for Moshe it's easy. And the Talmud leaves it at that. And all the commentaries have to wonder. Okay, for Moshe it's easy, that's true. He's connected. But he's talking to 600,000 Jews. You haven't answered the question. The question is, fear of God on a practical level is not easy. So how does that help me that for Moshe it's easy? Many answers have been offered for this, but the Alter Rebbe in chapter 42 gives the Kabbalistic answer. And the Kabbalistic answer is based on another piece of Talmud, which says that there are seven shepherds of the Jewish people. Seven people in our history get the classification shepherds because they provide something to every Jewish soul. Avraham Avinu is one of them. He provides kindness to every Jew. Yitzchak provides, you know, rigid, uh, he provides rigidity or severity or discipline. Yaakov provides compassion. Moshe is one of the seven shepherds. And what he provides is what the Kabbalists call dat, knowledge, but more accurately translated as depth or personalization. He provides every Jew with an innate capacity to let God be real in our lives. That's why in the Zohar he's called the Raya Mehemna, the faithful shepherd, but it also means the shepherd of faith. He shepherds, he nurtures our faith. He's able to give it that tangible ring that allows every Jew to access what otherwise would be inaccessible. And Moshe Rabbeinu lived thousands of years ago, but in every generation, his soul is present. There's a tzaddik, a rebbe in each generation whose role it is to make God real to the people. He's a living, breathing conduit of godliness in the world. And when Jews are around him, they get that feeling that God is real. I know this to be true about the rebbe because I've heard it about so, from so many people. When you were around him, you felt God's reality. But it's true of every tzaddik. These are the people that's, whose souls are closer to God. They haven't been filtered. And so they have this, this close connection and they provide it to everybody. So the Alter Rebbe says, you find that in your own life, it's hard to personalize God. It's hard to make him relevant. It's hard for your mind to get to your heart and inspire you. You should know the fire is already burning. The pilot light is on because there is a soul present that's feeding your soul with an innate, let's call it, uh, implanted integrity for God. So, who's next? we can put it, huh? Who's next? Good, 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 good question. Class for another time. We, so so we, have, we have the truth now. Yes, we may not be able to do it at all times. We can set aside times for it. We already have kind of a head start from the tzaddik's soul in our generation. 
And yes, the Alter Rebbe says, it takes work. Whatever you're going to do is going to take work. The, the Talmud, he says, the Talmud calls Yirat uh, Shamayim, the Talmud calls fear of heaven an otsar, a treasure. Why? Because sometimes you have to dig for it like you dig for a treasure. Digging for a treasure takes work. You got to get down and dirty and, and, and invest your energy. And one day you end up with nothing, it's tiring, it's exhausting, and you continue the work the next day till you find it. So the Altair says, yeah, you know, welcome to the world. Yes, it's difficult. I know it. Tell me more. But it's your treasure. And if it's your treasure, treat it as such. So that's kind of the backdrop against which the Altair begins to share specific meditations. He says, now you know this. Now you know that Judaism is a step of three dominoes. It's the mind to the heart to the deed. And that's the only way. Unless you're going to be a tzaddik who gets to experience God and feel him directly, your heart won't get ignited without a thought. And the thought is an art, it's a science, and it's work. Now, what's the good stuff? What's the thought? What should I be thinking about? And this is what's going to be happening over the next couple of chapters, depending on which emotion we're going to choose. Tonight, it's going to be fear of God. The awe. The basic submission that allows us to just do what God wants as a servant. What are those things that I could get into my mind and get into the routine of thinking? It's not a one-time thing. The Alter Rebbe comments, actually, in, earlier in chapter 33, he also mentions it here, that the word for faith in Hebrew, emunah, um, it, it, it means, even in modern Hebrew, it means a training or a proficiency or being accustomed to something. Because like, like working out in the gym, it, it's, you can't just do it once. It, it, there's got to be reps. Reps during the, the training, but repetition of the actual exercise routine as well. There has to, otherwise it, it, it can't sustain itself. So these thoughts that the Altair says, I'm going to give you now, some things, but remember, they're not just a one-time experience, they have to be constantly rethought. And you have to constantly remind yourself of it. Muscle memory. Muscle memory, till it becomes part of you. So he's gonna offer in this chapter four things. And you can choose you know, which one works for you. Four ideas that can inspire a deeper seriousness for our connection with God. Let me just pause for any questions or, or comment. You had a... No. There, there is a, we talked about it last week. There is a level of fear of punishment where you're just afraid of the consequences. But in Tanya, typically we talk about fear in the context of honoring the relationship. I don't want to lose what I have, so I won't violate the terms. Yeah. definitely one of the ways to fulfill it. Yeah, the Torah says, no Hashem your God. No means to make him real in your life. Mm-hmm. So can you put it also in, uh, can it mean confession? No. No. This is specifically contemplation of the mind. A mind exercise. Not hit bo didut with a dalet, which means going alone. Hit bo ninut with a nun. Yeah, contempl- yeah, think, yes, yes, very different. So, what, what are some of the things that we could engage our mind in? 
Number one, contemplate the fact that God knows what's going on in your life and he cares about the choices that you make. He knows everything and he's recording it. As the Mishnah says, God is an eye that sees, an ear that hears, and the fact that it's not physical actually makes it more all-encompassing. The fact that it's not a physical eye and a physical ear means that he can see and hear more than the typical. He can govern multiple lives at once. In an interesting, I guess pretty rare uh, turn, the Alter Rebbe gets into this a little bit philosophically as well. He gets into the mechanism of how God knows everything in the world. And uh, it comes up again in chapter 48, but here he just kind of references it in short. But I, I want to give you some of the context. He, just some. We're not going to go into this because this is a whole another Parsha. But, but the, the, the short version is philosophers, since time immemorial, have been struggling with the question of God's awareness of what's happening in the world. You see, they, they deduced that the early philosophers believed in God. They weren't like today's atheists. They, they, they came with a premise that there is a God, but they deduced him from creation. In other words, they didn't believe in revelation and that, kind of, that whole thing. Who are they? Sorry. The philosophers of the Rambam's time, oh. let's call it, Aristotle and these people. Um, their, their, their starting point was that there's intelligent design there's so much detail, so much intricacy, so much beauty that there is definitely a creator. But because their creator only came from the world, they started to deduce some other things. They came to the preposition that Hashem has to be perfect. And that makes sense. They came to the preposition that He has to be without any lack whatsoever. No lacking. He couldn't be lacking anything. Hence, he could not be changing or dynamic. Because a changing God would imply an imperfect one. And that led them to their big question, how could God be aware of the consistent change that's taking place in this world? This world's imperfect. This world's ever-changing. We're making choices at every moment that's influencing all of the cosmos. So to say that God is aware in the moment of what's going on basically is to say that Hashem is changing. Hmm. Because new information means a new person or a new entity in God's case. So they said, I want to just develop the point just so we have it full. He said, so, so they said, to use the line of one of my Italian teachers, or maybe it's even a, a, a famous line, they made God so great as to render him meaningless. They, they, they basically said that uh, because God is perfect, he, his realm must be the perfect realm. He kind of created the world at arm's distance. He let it go. He's not aware fully of what's happening because uh, otherwise it would affect his perfection. It's a, it's a philosophical impossibility, they said. So... So God, God, God lives with the angels, God lives in the spiritual, God lives with the perfect, and the imperfect, he just leaves to its own devices. The Rambam came out against this. He was the Jewish, I guess, uh, equivalent 
of the philosophy in his time. It's, it's, it's even become known in later generations that he only went to that because he needed to combat the spirit of philosophy and enlightenment that was infiltrating the Jewish world. But he, he came to write some of the most powerful philosophical Jewish works. And in one of them, he addresses this very question of God's awareness of what's going on in the world. And he says a line that's been dissected now for generations, which is that God's awareness of creation comes from his self-awareness. His self-awareness. God knows himself, therefore he knows everything. And it's a fancy way of saying that creation retains its relationship with God. At every moment we are one with God. And since God has no past, present, and future, everything exists with the ultimate oneness within him, so it's, there's no change being affected. He's as perfect as before, as after, as consistently. This is very, very deep stuff. We're going to get into it more in, in chapter 48. But suffice it to say that that's the mechanism for it. Hashem knows everything because He knows Himself. Unlike us, all our knowledge starts from outside ourselves. We have to analyze, take in, compartmentalize information that we glean from the outside world. With God, it's the inside out. He starts with Himself, and because He knows Himself, He knows everything. So, in a certain way, it's not that God is great, therefore He doesn't care about us. It's God is so great that he does care about us. And he does know everything, every detail in our lives. And the Alter Rebbe says, that knowledge of God being attentive to our choices is enough to inspire an awe of him. Remember last week we talked about the Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who on his deathbed wished his students, I hope you fear God like you fear humans. And they said, what, is that all you have to give us? And he said, yeah, I, I actually wish. You know, <laughs> Halavai, it would be that way. And the basic tenet is, when someone's watching, you behave. God is watching, so we behave. Now, it's not the obvious reality. That's why it requires thought. See, when someone else is in the room, you don't have to give much contemplation to the fact that they're watching you. They're just there. So yeah, you, physically. So physically, you, yeah, yeah. So your, your actions measure up to that. With God, he's also right here. And he's also aware. And he's also taking it in. But you need to have the thought into it. And that's an idea Believe it or not, even though it sounds kind of ethereal, you can draw that down to control the way you live. That's number one. One of four. Here's number two of four. And the altar prefaces it with an illustration. And again, I mentioned this last week. In the Torah, the model of the big guy is a king. In the Jewish political hierarchy, the king was of the highest stature. And he's used as an image to describe sort of the man-god relationship. But we can easily, you know, um, compare it to any big person in our life. Anybody that has a presence for us and that we respect. What is it that we respect about them, the Alter Rebbe says? Is it his gold and silver? Is it his wealth? Is it his beautiful clothes and his palace? No. Is it even his body? his hands, his feet, his flesh and blood. No. What we respect about a big person is his soul, his personality, his identity. Dr. Rebbe says an interesting uh, meta proof for this is that when the king is sleeping, you don't have that awe for him. Interestingly. It's only when he's awake because that's when his presence is alive. Says the Alter Rebbe, I challenge you to think into the fact that the entire world 
is a dress-up of God. Everything we see is innumerable expressions of Him. Let's call it God's clothes. Everything in the world is an embodiment of Him. And just like when it comes to a king, what you see is the externalities. You see his body, you see his clothes, you see his wealth, you see his power. Yet what's inspiring the respect is the stuff that's behind that. You could inspire an awe for God from the world. Just from observing his clothes. God is in the details of the universe. God is in the diversity of the universe. God is in the beauty of the universe. God is in every single thing that screams at you if you're only attentive enough to it, his identity. And again, that's why we have, we have to use the word hitbonanut because it's not, the tree is not going to scream Hashem to me unless I think into it. The beauty of a new day, of a sunrise, of a sunset, of nature, of the Grand Canyon, it's not going to scream godliness to you unless you're in tune with it. So that's the second thing. You can think about God being present. And you could also think about God, that he's, that he's the world. Everything is singing him, if you could only hear the music. And by the way, it's not in the Tanya, but there's a discourse in Chassidus that says, you know, if I asked you which of the two is more powerful, thinking about God being present to your choices or finding God in the world, initially most people would say the first one because Hashem is right here present in my life versus having to find God in the outside of me. But there's another, a later Rebbe who makes the case that uh, the deeper one actually is the second because the first one will only bring God into your mind. The second one will bring God into the world. It's much more practical in a certain way. Yes, it's not focused on you, it's focused on the world. But uh, there's, there's a depth to it that the first way doesn't have. Just a side point. Anyways, the point is there's, these are the two, the two ideas that we could use to inspire awe of Hashem. Hashem is aware and He cares and everything is Him. Everything is expressing Him. And there's two more. In the last 10 lines of the chapter, the Alter Rebbe kind of squeezes in. Very short, very terse. Uh, two more th- things you can consider. And I, I guess they're, they're kind of a, a, an evolution, really, of the, of the last two points that I made. One is, again, using the king metaphor, the Alter Rebbe says, well, what if you've never met the king? You know, it's easy to, uh, to use the king metaphor when you've seen him. You've seen the guy with the big presence, and you can, in your head... Tell yourself, yeah, it's not his clothes, it's not, it's not the trappings, it's him, it's his being. But what if you've never met the king? So the Alter Rebbe says, we find in current reality, and I guess he meant you know, the czar or maybe... You know, you know, huh? I'm sorry. He said, we see in current reality, and I'm saying, I, I guess he meant the czar because you know, the king was a presence. By the way, as an aside... When the Tsar died, there was a chassid who started to cry. And his friend asked him, you know, what are you crying? This guy was one of the most tyr- you know, tyrannical things. He says, we lost the parable for God's kingship. Whenever he wanted to explain to his friend about God's kingship, he would use the Tsar as the, as the metaphor. 
He says, we lost the mushal from Malchus Da'atzilus, is what he said. We, we, so anyway. But the, the, the king was always seen as this imagery. So the Alter Rebbe says, we see in practical reality that even a person who has not ever met a king coming into the palace and seeing all these servants and attendants and ministers all bowing to the king and all acknowledging his presence, other people being in awe can inspire awe in yourself. It's true of other emotions too. I know you can have having a bad day and then you go into a wedding and everybody's happy. It kind of inspires a happiness in yourself. Or you can go to a guy's, uh, you know, some big personality that you didn't even know you're supposed to respect, but everybody's respecting him. You go, okay, I, I got to now, this guy obviously deserves some respect, even though you don't, you're not in touch with what it is. But, uh, but there's that thing that other people's feelings could help you experience things. So the Alter Rebbe says, even if you've never met the king, in other words, you've never experienced God as closely as you might have wanted to, but the entire world is in awe of God. The Talmud says, and again, this is another topic, Maybe we, I don't want to get into too deeply, but the Talmud says, the entirety of the universe is shifting westward. Torah believes in geocentricity, which means the world's at the center. The solar system is going around it. And everything goes to the west. Why? The Shekhinah is in the west. The entirety of the solar system is bowing to God. So the Alter Rebbe says, the awe that other created beings are experiencing Maybe that could be a catalyst for your own awe. And this is not in the Tanya, but again, I'm drawing from another source. Being around people for whom God is real can inspire you to get a sense of reality of God. That's why it was so important throughout the years to always be next to a tzaddik, be in proximity to him even once a year, go to visit his resting place, like we did a couple of weeks back. These are the things, when you go to somebody who God is confirmed by him, you can get a little more of the confirmation for yourself. Kind of by osmosis, yeah. So even if the first metaphor of the king doesn't work for you, in other words, it's hard for you to see the music of God everywhere. But maybe you can find somebody else who's living it Mm. and uh, kind of emulate him or stay close to him. That can bring out an inspiration for you. The Shekhinah you just mentioned. Yeah. How does it relate to the Shekhinah, the feminine side of yeah, we're going to be talking about it more um, in chapter, the last three chapters of Atanya, 51 to 53, a whole okay. discourse on Shekhinah. But uh, typically we talk about it as, it, it's, it's an imagery of God. Let's just call it for, for this sake. Okay. God is in the West. I know that sounds very childish, but basically the idea that West is considered an expression of God's energy and the whole of the world is turning towards the West. So that idea of maybe your own relationship with the king is not enough, but other people can help you. And the final consideration that a person can think about is something we also talked about last week. It's funny, chapters 41, 42 are you know, very much in the same theme. Torah requires that as a Jew, we actively subjugate ourselves to the higher authority. When it comes to a king, the Torah says, Som tasim alecha melech, place you shall place the king upon yourself. And the Talmud derives, that means you have to do something that makes you in awe of him. Hmm. Hmm. On the most basic level, if the king wasn't that rich, the country is obligated to make him richer. <coughs> but even other things, maybe you, maybe you didn't look up to him as the biggest role model. Now he's the king, 
tell yourself, do, do something to tell yourself, I need to take upon myself his authority. So the Alter Rebbe says, do that with Hashem. Find ways in your life that you can actively subjugate yourself to him. The Alter Rebbe says that's why we bow during davening. Part of the reason for the bowings that we do during Shemona Esrei, it's a physical expression of the awe we have for Hashem. So, to tie a bow on it, four different things that can be used to inspire Yirat Hashem. Fear of heaven, fear of God, and fear, we don't mean fear of punishment, we mean awe and respect for Him. Number one, He's attentive and involved. He's right here watching us. Number two, everything in the world is Him. You can find Him everywhere. Number three, even if you couldn't find Him, others have. Hang around them. And number four, the bowing. The idea that even if nothing in your mind is helping it, but you can, you can tell yourself that. You can tell yourself that it's important to accept his yoke of leadership. Mm. And although the Altair doesn't say it of the closing line, I will. And that is, choose the one that works for you. Mm. And remember that the line against which everything in the end is measured is the practical behavior. These are not just academic ideas to reflect on so we could be better educated. These are things that we want to use as a mechanism to inspire us so that we act. Because action and being the benoni, being the one who does what it is in alignment with Hashem's will, is where it's at. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.